The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 16, which is on page 542. Psalm 16, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from Galatians 5, 1 and also 13 through 25, found on page 1,171. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning, Sherman. So, yeah, lots happened, huh? <laughs> I just, like, I mean, we were hardly, like, getting our footing again after um, Synod and Roe versus Wade happened, which, yeah, like Tony said, um, I'm sure there's a lot of opinions in this room and that they go in lots of different directions. Um, and I want to talk about that for a little while, and I promise I'm going to get to Galatians, and all of this actually is, has to do with it, uh, but I'm going to talk about this for a bit before I actually get into the text. Um, so like, like Tony was saying, um, I think in this room there's probably people who celebrated when Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, and others are deeply grieving and scared about what might come next. Uh, and then lots of you, I think, are probably, like Tony, in the middle, um, maybe not completely convinced by the arguments of either side, maybe wishing for a more nuanced conversation. Maybe you don't feel like you understand um, enough to be able to definitely say one way or the other. Um, and I also bet that there are people here on either end of the conversation who are outraged that they could go to church with somebody who believes the other pole of the conversation. Um, and yet, here we all are, called by Christ to be together. Um, the temptation in conversations like this is to demonize the other, or to reduce them down at least just to that one opinion, um, or just to a stereotype, and to write them off. But, but if we remain even the slightest bit committed to our community of faith here, then I want to say we have an incredible opportunity to do so much better than that. I remain convinced that this space, the space of disagreement and conflict, is the American church's best opportunity to witness to the gospel. Our best opportunity. And it is one that we squander time and again. Um, and I think also, it's partly the church's failure to do this well that has landed this country in the incredibly divided space that it is in. Like we can hardly, largely because of people who say that we are here to love our neighbors, we can hardly talk to our literal neighbors because of the signs that are in our front yards. Um, so I want to tell you I'm a little worried about saying this because I'm worried it might be triggering for somebody. If you have to get up and leave, do that. If you have to cover your ears or put in your headphones, no one will judge you. Um, somebody might, but I'll tell them they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, when we entered into the conversation about gay marriage at Sherman Street, about full inclusion, which is a controversial conversation in the church, um, I saw something pretty clearly. And I want to tell you what I got to see from like watching you all try to work this out together. Um, 
before we started talking about it openly, um, Sherman Street was mostly progressive on that topic, which is unfortunate to talk about as a topic. Um, but we wanted to affirm gay marriage. We wanted full participation in the life of the church. Most people here did. Um, but there were some other people, and are some other people, who, um, from what I saw, really like wanted to be affirming, uh, but also really wanted to be faithful to what they saw in scripture and just were not convinced by the arguments. And even were like, please help me be convinced. Uh, but weren't. So, like, I want to say that's a very different uh, position than I think what we saw in Synod, which was callous and careless. Um, this was a kind of traditional perspective that was like, I love these people. I know, like, gay people, I love them, and I just can't figure out how to do this. Um, Anyway, so we had these groups, and then a bunch, always we have a bunch of people who just kind of don't know what they think about things. Um, anyway, before we started talking, we had this mix of perspectives, but nobody really knew who each other was, and that was kind of okay for everybody. Not everybody, it wasn't okay for gay people particularly. Um, but we were more or less still a tight church community, even though we knew there was a variety of opinions on this controversial thing. We were a community full of people who loved one another. But here's what I saw. As soon as council said, we're gonna make a decision, everybody pulled, like the two different people in the different groups of perspectives pulled away from each other. And they retreated into their stereotypes. Um, instead of being like, oh, those people are people that I know and love, I think they actually didn't know who was on what side, but they were like, Whoever that is, they are X. Like, they are the stereotype. You can um, guess whatever words were used, right? It was like, it was kind of surprising to me as people who used to be capable of living in the tension of the disagreement all of a sudden became quite scared and defensive and angry. Um, many of you could no longer see each other the way you had seen each other before. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not true for you. Maybe you feel like this is really unfair. Fine, it was true of other people. But, like, as a community in general, I think I saw this pretty clearly. Um, but then when we sat down to have conversations together, so if you weren't here during that time, we had a series of restorative circles, um, which are just, like, a controlled way of having a difficult conversation. I think we had nine of those conversations. It was like, in that space, I watched people shake off the blindness that had like clouded their eyes and go like, oh yeah, it's actually just you. And I love you. You're not like the ignorant fool that I thought you were. Or you haven't just like completely thrown out the Bible. Like, I know you. You guys all, in face to face, remembered that you loved each other. It was kind of amazing to watch, and you know, we did make a decision, right? We are an open and affirming congregation. But we are also very careful to say everyone is welcome here, so long as people are treating with one another with respect. Jesus' tent was a big one. 
like bigger than anybody wanted it to be. And actually, he was constantly offending everyone by welcoming in everyone. And people, like especially the religious leaders, they had like very clear ideas about who was in and who was out. And Jesus just kept stepping over their lines to invite more people in. Over and over, Jesus called us not to full agreement on every disagreement that came up, but to love. John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything is summed up here. Or John 13, they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And it's not like Jesus had any delusions that even in his own disciples, everyone agreed on everything or even anything, right? Like, even that some of their beliefs might actually be harmful to other people. Jesus invited a tax collector and a zealot into his disciples. Those are political enemies. One supported and upheld the violent empire that the other wanted to violently overthrow. I'm sure that they thought the other was harmful. But they weren't just a tax collector and a zealot. They were Matthew and Simon. And they were both followers of Jesus, and both of them called to love. And that's not an easy task. And I don't think Jesus ever pretended it was easy. He literally died loving the people who were killing him out of their own ignorance. Forgive them, he said, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, I tell you, like, people who don't believe in women in office uh, or who think that marriage is, like, more about submission and power and, like, I need to be controlled because I'm inherently sinful because I'm a woman, like, yeah, those people make me really mad. <laughs> right? And I think they're wrong, and I'm often offended by them and dehumanized. They often don't even know that they're being offensive towards me. And yet, I am called to love. And in that way, those same people become my greatest teachers. My pain then becomes a way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that doesn't mean that I don't argue back, and it doesn't mean that I don't have boundaries. It, does, it doesn't mean that I have to be best friends with them or hang out with them all the time. Um, but I am called to love, which means that I can't wholly write them off. I can't reduce their humanity down to one opinion. And it's also true that there are people with whom I disagree on this issue of my own body who I feel deeply loved by. Um, Tony's old pastor, uh, Cliff, is very conservative. Um, he was one of the loudest voices against women in office in the CRC. 
And yet, when we spend time with Cliff and his wife, he is so caring and kind. He is so respectful of my ministry even, asks about it. And I know what he thinks. And he doesn't feel like he has to tell me all the time, which I appreciate. (laughs) And I respect him because I know that he's trying to be faithful to God. I see the love in him. I totally disagree with him. And I think that he has probably harmed a lot of people with his arguments. He probably thinks the same about me. But he and I are called to love one another. And we do. Like this is the challenge of the church. It is the challenge of love. Love that doesn't force people to, like, love does not force people to be one way or another. Love is not coercive or controlling. Love does not depend on fixing the other person. Love looks at the other and struggles to love exactly what it sees. And that is often painful. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have boundaries. Like, please don't hear that. You definitely should. You should. And you should speak your peace when it's necessary. And we'd all be better off if we could learn how to speak openly with one another. But still holding on to one another's humanity, as we saw happened in the circles. I mean, that's the reason that I think those circles are so valuable, is that like we're all really bad (laughs) at conflict. I mean, there's probably a couple of you who are good, and probably most of us think that we're pretty good. Uh, (laughs) But we're bad, I think, I've watched a number of circles now because I facilitate these things, right? We're bad at both saying what needs to be said in a way that even expresses what we mean and what's happening in us, and we're bad at listening well when other people are talking. We have like no imagination for what's going on in someone else. Um, But the circle conversations have helped us to see, those kinds of conversations help us to see the human beyond the talking points. Um, It seems that for Jesus, um, our opinions actually don't matter that much. They matter, at least they matter a lot less than our love. And our love tempers and pushes our opinions in good directions. There has never been a time in the history of the church, not ever, where the whole church agreed on everything. Never. Like, not since Simon and Matthew, the disciples. And it seems to me that maybe we should take that as a sign that Jesus didn't really intend for the church to be about all of us agreeing together. But maybe Jesus intended it for us to learn to really love one another. And actually, I think that if we could do that well across whatever lines our culture wants to divide us by, I think we would actually go a lot farther in doing justice well too.
Um, I often talk about this study uh, that I read about in my undergrad psychology class. It kind of blew my mind in my textbook. Um, these researchers, right, and stuck. It's been like, I don't even know how many years because I'm too old. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, these researchers put together several uh, like teams of people and gave them a complex, pro gave each team this complex problem to solve. And then in half of the teams, in half of the teams they put um, someone whose job it was to be the devil's advocate. And the rest of the people on the team didn't know this, they just knew this one person argued with everything that everybody said. Um, and then they had them solve this, these problems in these teams and then they analyzed the solutions they came up with. Um, every group that had a devil's advocate in it came up with a much more robust and workable solution than the groups without them. And then, this is the best part, the researchers gave the teams the opportunity to vote someone out of their team. And guess who they voted out? The devil's advocate every time. Because none of us like conflict. And yet, like the conflict in that situation drew everybody to a better place. I think it actually serves us. And like there's conflict all over the New Testament, everywhere. Galatians, we're at the text. <laughs> Galatians is almost entirely about a particular conflict that is plaguing the early church, right? It's about circumcision, which is weird. Uh, most of us have like been around the church long enough that we think like talking about circumcision is totally normal. Uh, <laughs> But it's not, right? It doesn't take long to think about, like, like a lot of the New Testament is about that. Okay, <laughs> anyway. Um, but that's what the conflict they're dealing with, right? Did new believers have to get circumcised? They're not Jewish people, but now they're following a Jewish Messiah. Do they have to follow the law? And it came down to, do they have to get circumcised? Um, in the whole book of Galatians, Paul is making an argument about the role of the Old Testament law and why circumcision was not necessary. When he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free, he's not talking about freedom in the way that we usually talk about it in the United States, like, I can do whatever I want. Um, Paul is talking about a freedom to love that is not governed by the law. Um, I actually find it really hard to wrap my mind around how he talks about the law, uh, but I find it helpful to compare it to speed limits. Um, so let's talk a bit about speed limits. Um, speed limits were put in place to keep people from getting hurt, right? We're hurtling around in these big chunks of metal, and so we need some rules to make it as safe as it can be. That's actually a lot like the Old Testament law. Um, it was put in place to help a sinful people to not destroy each other, to limit our violence, and to help build community and cultural identity. Um, people, as it turns out, are actually just not very good at making decisions in the direction of community, and so we need a little help from a rule. Um, people respond to speed limits in all sorts of different ways. Uh, some people feel proud as they like brazenly flout the speed limit, I'm not gonna be controlled by anything. Um, others feel like good if they go like 10 over because they know they're not gonna get pulled over. Uh, that's like not quite keeping the law, but like almost. Uh, <laughs> others won't even go one over 
because they care about like doing what they should. Um, or maybe they're like, this is what keeps the community safe. And some of them um, you know, might even drive slower than the limit to like show how much they care. Um, maybe feel some pride about that decision. Maybe some derision towards others who behave differently. Like there's tons of responses, but no matter any of these choices, each one of them is still in reference to the number on the sign. It's still in reference to the rule. A speed limit is super helpful, but let's just like imagine that you move to a country. Uh, let's just imagine you move to a country where there's no speed limits anymore. Um, no signs, no numbers, no cops waiting to pull you over, and no tickets. Um, what does that do to you as a driver? Now you have to make a decision, right? Since the law is gone, you are no longer beholden to it or judged by it. You can't even use it as a reference point. You are still somehow going to have to decide how fast you will drive down the road. And what is going to govern your choice? That's... Sorry, I lost myself. <laughs> You've been given the freedom to step away from the number of the, on the sign. And with it comes a freedom to return to the heart that was behind it, right? You can choose to serve the love that put the number there in the first place, to look out for your community, or not. Will you make your decision based on your own schedule or thrill-seeking or whatever, or saying no one gets to tell me what to do, or will you consider others and consider love? Like, it's your choice in this new place, you're free. And that's essentially what Paul is saying about the Old Testament law here. Now Christians are not bound to the law in the way that Jewish people were. They are free. But what will they use their freedom for? Will they return to the heart of things, the thing, which Paul says in our text is to love your neighbor as yourself, and he's quoting from Leviticus. Or will they just do whatever they want? They're no longer limited in the same way, but their actions will have consequences. If you live solely for yourself, your freedom and the freedom of everyone around you will, will shrink, right? Like if no speed limit means for you that you race around the city and fly through crosswalks, everyone will be scared. And eventually you'll probably kill someone, which severely limits their freedom, or you might die yourself. But if no speed limit means for you that instead of looking at the number on the sign, now you look to the needs around you. You might drive extra slowly through a school zone, and you might race to the hospital, and both might be in service of love. You are free to love, even if love requires breaking the law that was there before. So if you choose this way of love that Paul is telling the Galatians to choose. If you choose this way of love, the lack of speed limit will do a couple of things for you. One, it will shape you more and more towards love. Because instead of looking at the number and making all your decisions in reference to the number and whether or not you'll get caught and whatever, now instead you are looking to other people. You're looking to your community and you are practicing love in that moment rather than practicing obedience. 
And the second thing is that it will allow for more creativity in the way that you love. Now the cap has been taken off, so if speeding is required for love, then you speed. And if going slow is required for love, then you go slow. All of the options are open. You are free to love in new ways, even. And then all of a sudden, this tension around Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, it makes some sense, right? Like, because the Pharisees were looking at the number on the sign, and it said, like, no work on the Sabbath. And they were busy, like, calculating, well, what constitutes work? And, like, can you carry your mat? And how fast can you walk? And they had gotten really, really good at measuring that. They were really good at telling whether you were obeying the sign or not. They were so good at obedience that they'd forgotten the heart that put the sign there in the first place. So when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, their calculations said, sinner! But Jesus' calculation said, there is no limit on love. And he said stuff like, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. If love requires you to shift the rules, then you shift the rules. Because the rules were only there for the sake of love in the first place. Now, I'm not going to go far into Paul's list except to say, um, his list of vices on, in verses 19 through 21 are all, example, are all examples of what happens if you choose to see no law as license for living selfishly. If you like kind of turn inward when you're given that freedom. Each of the examples is something that destroys community or dehumanizes other people or yourself. When you turn to the fruit of the spirit, his next list, they are all things that draw people together and that keep them together even through hard things. Like, some of them are really tough, like forbearance. Uh, sometimes that's translated patience, but mean, it means like putting up with each other. To put up with each other is a fruit of the Spirit. Because um, it's on the road to love. Gentleness is a good one, too. It could be translated gentle strength. It's perfect for us in how we think about how we hold our convictions. It doesn't say you cannot be strong, but it says do it gently. In some way, our conversations about things like gay marriage or Roe versus Wade, like we become rule followers in these conversations again. Only we've invented a new law. And I don't mean, I do not mean that one side is following rules and the other side isn't. I mean that each side has a set of rules that it is not okay to, tra to transgress. And that's what makes the conversation impossible. Like, honestly, I couldn't write this sermon. I rewrote the whole thing this morning. I couldn't write this sermon for a long time because I was afraid to admit that my opinion on Roe versus Wade is like, I don't really know. And I kind of knew that people would be mad at me in either direction. Because it breaks the rules of our, like, political discourse. I have to be all in, in one direction or the other. I'm kind of drawn to both sides, and I'm kind of repelled by both of them, too. And like, we have to be able to talk about things. And it's funny because both sides of this argument, despite our stereotypes, both sides of this argument came about 
because of love. Like there are for sure power hungry people who do not care about either unborn babies or women in desperate situations. They care only about their own power. That's for sure true. But like most people are trying to love and figure out how to get through this world doing good. But oh so ironically, our attempt to love has generated rules that keep us from talking to our neighbors because of the signs that are in their front yards. We can't figure it out anymore. All the while, making our solutions increasingly simple. We're not allowed to nuance anything anymore. All in or all out. And herein lies the opportunity for the church. To learn to love without limits, without rules, creatively, across lines, in a way that might just generate something new that the rules could never bring about. That maybe we could come up with the more robust and workable solution because we can argue with each other and because we approach this from the space of love. We're not that good at that on our own, which is why we need to learn to depend on the Spirit, to listen to the Spirit in us. I think this is why, um, like people struggle sometimes to figure out why they need church um, when like they are loving people all on their own. They're, uh, particularly when we care about social justice and so much of the church is like, meh. Um, but for me, this is why. I need the Spirit to help me. And I need each one of you to tell me when I'm being dumb because I don't actually know the, un like, the other side of this conversation. The work of the Christian is not really so much that we work really hard to be more patient and more kind and just better. Um, like fighting against ourselves all the time. Like Paul says, those who live by the Spirit will not gratify their selfish desires. Not that they like shouldn't, but that they won't. It seems like, like there is work for us to do in this, but the work is not so much forcing ourselves into compliance, obeying more and more and more rules that we set up, it is ever greater attention to the spirit that lives in us. And so we take our focus off of the rulesy do or don't and attend to the spirit. Jesus loves us wholly and entirely, despite our foibles even, and all the things we've got wrong. Jesus is honest and trustworthy. Jesus does not shy away from a hard conversation. Jesus is gentle and firm. Jesus is kind and welcoming. Jesus is life and light and resurrection. And by the Spirit, 
Jesus lives in each one of you. Our work is to continue to put aside the rules that the world gives us and our temptations toward them and to return every day in every moment to the love of Jesus that is in us. That we might learn to love as we have been loved. That the Spirit might lead us into something new together. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, um, just teach us to love, we pray. Teach us to do justice and to speak up for the least of these. And to make safe space for those of us who have been wounded and also to love our enemies. Lord, may we not even make that into another rule, but learn always to return to your spirit in us. May you teach us what that means. In Jesus' name, amen.